Time now for AliCast, a deep dive into innovative and emerging trends in e-commerce, online payments, and digital entertainment. Brought to you by Alibaba Group, we'll offer insights about Chinese consumers and brands doing business in China. We'll delve into global online retail, cloud computing, big data, and other must-know topics and issues in and around one of China's largest companies. I'm Adam Najberg. Last year, global retail sales hit $22 trillion, with e-commerce about $1.9 trillion of that. That's about 9% of the total. In the U.S., retail sales hit nearly $3.4 trillion. That's up about 4% from a year earlier. And web sales were about $395 billion of that. That's 12% of the total. So from a distance, the overall retail picture in developed countries doesn't look so bad. And the picture for online sales, again, if you're looking at the numbers, looks bright. Transactions per person are up. Mobile phones put a buying device potentially in the palm of everyone's hand. Technology is permeating the entire process from browsing to logistics to delivery. Everything is supposedly getting easier. But there's a lot more going on under the hood. There's a big shift underway, both in the U.S. and globally in retail. Everything is really more nuanced than the numbers are showing. With us on AliCast today is Tom Goodwin, Executive Vice President of Innovation at Zenith. Together with Tom, let's delve into the changing global retail landscape. Tom knows more than a few things about the retail environment. So, Tom Goodwin, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining us. Tom, please tell our AliCast listeners, many of whom are, are not aware of this, what does an executive vice president of innovation do? <laughs> That's a very good question and one I get asked um, a lot. In short, I feel like it's about guiding people through change. It's about taking our clients, um, allowing them to understand the threats and the opportunities that the changing world provides. So whether that's new consumer expectations, whether that's new technologies, whether that's new platforms, it's about making sure that we're able to provide advice with how people can make the most of that. I mean, it's also about what's not changing as well. I think it's it's very easy for people like me to only ever talk about the vast amounts of change that are in the world. Uh, but we also have to be mindful of not of what's not changing. So in addition to guiding them through this changing landscape, I, I also do a lot of writing. I do a lot of speaking. And then finally, it's my job to actually make this happen. So when I find partners that are doing interesting things, when I find startups that have profound technology, it's my job to bring first to market opportunities to our clients. I know you've done a lot of writing. You're you're quite a prolific devil, and I'm actually a, a, someone who absor- <laughs> absorbs a lot of your writing. You recently wrote about the bifurcation of shopping into the practical and experiential. For the former, you talk about or you write about Amazon as the Zen or Spartan example. Um, you not only make yeah. the, for the friction disappear, but with things like the Amazon Dash button, you said you make shopping disappear. Stuff just arrives. So. Who wants that? I think the important thing to note about the piece about this bifurcation of shopping was the degree to which it's not saying that people are either type A or type B. It's not the case that, you know, we lazily assume that some people hate shopping and some people love shopping and the world splits that way. It's that the modern world gives us lots of choices. Um, Sometimes we want a craft beer to explain to the world how interesting and and sort of dynamic we are and how we take interest in what we drink. And sometimes we want a Bud Light, which is the same as any other Bud Light in the world. Uh, Sometimes we want McDonald's. Sometimes we want um, to eat in a luxury restaurant. So it's essentially saying there are different products that at different times people choose to buy in one of two radically different ways. And for most of the world, because retail is 
fix, stores had to kind of compromise for both. But as the internet basically becomes endless and shop shelves are infinite, I think we are seeing this sort of motion where stores are either making the experience as easy, as efficient, as uh, repetitive, as unmemorable, as quick as possible. And then some stores are going the other way, which is to try and make the experience delightful and interesting and, uh, and almost something that people do. Remember that this sort of spans both the on and the offline world. And there are plenty of people that drive to the mall primarily because of entertainment purposes rather than because there's urgent need to buy something. So w- where is that split? If, if I want to buy a carton of eggs, I don't need dancing bears or something like that, right? <laughs> I, th- I think the, the easy place to draw the, the line would be between kind of comparison shopping and, you know, almost like sort of quick, impulsive shopping. I think it's probably more complicated than that. You know, at the end of the day, we, we may assume that buying eggs will only ever be something that we do out of necessity. You know, there, there probably will be some sort of beautiful road trip that we take through the countryside in, in France or in Spain or in the Catskill Mountains in the US. And, and we'll happen across a little farm and there'll be a little honesty box. And we'll kind of feel like buying the eggs at that particular moment just because, you know, we're sort of compelled to get into the the sort of feeling of authenticity and the sort of artisanal nature of these eggs so i i genuinely think there are people you know there are people who will buy both sides there are moments that people will buy from both sides and there are particular products that people will buy from both sides you know most people would assume that clothing is something that you enjoy shopping for and that it's a chance to sort of express who you are and they and they want to get a certain amount of help but there are times when you just want to buy a white t-shirt and you just need it to arrive as soon as possible to use the egg example again if we talk about something like technology in your kitchen the internet of things artificial intelligence if your refrigerator is smart enough to look inside and see that you're down to two eggs. That's obviously not something, it's not going to tell you hop in the car and go drive across the countryside and buy it. For that convenience... For for that convenience factor, isn't that, especially in the United States, isn't that what a lot of people want for the things that you need every day, the toothpaste, the eggs, the stuff in your fridge? We want that to be as frictionless as possible? I think for many of those things, I mean, one has to be careful that they don't just become a data point of, of one that's highly unrepresentative without realizing it. But if I look at my sort of shopping happening, happen, they're probably slightly more sort of advanced than most, but they probably found the right sort of balance between this sort of sci-fi world where things arrive by kind of drone, you know, automatically triggered by an iBeacon and with the sort of reality of how much technology we want in, in our lives. So there are some products that genuinely I care about so little that I've asked for them to be served to me automatically each month. But the, the reality is that I probably don't want some sort of infrared array in my fridge that monitors my hand movement that scans the milk that tells me when it's off and then automatically sort of triggers the delivery of of a single carton of milk the next day because it seems overly complicated and and the sort of economics of such a thing are are probably pretty disastrous. So I think we'll probably find this sort of amazing hybrid where, you know, we we have, you know, e-commerce companies that are delivering us shopping regularly, that a lot of what we buy regularly will kind of automatically make its way into the shopping list where we have technology that's allowing us to suggest new ingredients that might go along with the banana bread it thinks that we're probably trying to cook. So I I think we'll find this hybrid of, of a sensible amount of 
have automation in a way that's commercially robust. But it will still mean that occasionally I'm waking up in the morning without milk and I have to go downstairs and, and sort of buy some. So I think, you know, this kind of this Jetsons futuristic scenario with everything flying around automatically is probably just not going to happen commercially. The difference is, of course, you blame the computer for not ordering the eggs rather than your partner, right? <laughs> That's <laughs> Exactly. It's just a different form of blaming. But on the other side, I always equate an English accent with a gentleman. So I'm assuming you're a gentleman. <laughs> and I always equate that accent with bespoke suits, for example. So if we look at the other side of it, you wrote about the experience of the consultation of getting your suit fitted or the sights, the sounds, the smells of the M&M shop in New York. Like who really needs to have M&Ms at 11.45 p.m.? Talk about that a little bit. What you talked about earlier with going across the countryside to get eggs as an impulse buy. Now we're talking about an actual plan to go out and please yourself and, and, and you know make shopping a fun experiential thing. Talk about it from the consumer side and from the brand or or retailer side. Okay. I mean, there's a lot to say here. I mean, I would sort of reiterate my point about the degree to which there's the sort of yin and the yang. So because many of the things that used to take up a lot of my time, and quite frankly, you take up a lot of my mental capacity, because they're now made much more easy, it now sort of frees up my thinking and my time to spend more time caring about the things I care about. So because my tide gross uh, laundry detergent arrives automatically every month, it now means that when I go to the wine shop, I quite like the idea of looking at all the labels and sort of thinking about the provenance of, of where the grapes have come from, because I have time to do that. And I think we, we can never have so much automation in our lives that life becomes so inefficient that we don't feel alive. You know, I think um, the whole point of, of being alive is to kind of experience things and to talk to people and uh, um, think about things and to learn about things. So as a reaction to all this stuff that happens automatically, I think it frees up considerable amounts of, of kind of energy to go and take more interest in other things. Um, and who knows what that is? It might be the sort of olive oil that you cover on your holiday in Mars, France. It may be the sort of bread in the bakery you like walking to where the person there is really kind of interesting and funny. Um, it may be a kind of organic grocery store where you get to read a little plaque about all of the uh, farmers that have taken care of it. So I think we'll start to see some stores, you know, whether it's Nike store that has runs that you can go on for free, uh, whether it's Whole Foods, which will give you a map of where all the ingredients have come from. We'll start to see some stores kind of really go to town on how you can make the experience of shopping feel really significant. I think what this means for brands is, is actually quite hard because, you know, retailers can kind of design for one or the other. I think brands have to try and figure out how they can play a role in both of those different decisions. So you'll see some sort of brands, especially the kind of fashion brands that probably are going to design themselves for products that people take more interest in. Um, it's all like Lululemon. I, I, I don't know if it's widespread in China, but they have labels on each of the items that tells the person why they decided to make that item. It's quite a sort of human moment where they kind of explain why they did that. Uh, so like Muji in Japan, you can use red dots in the store to tell the, the store owner what products you particularly like as a way to almost sort of vote and to sort of feel part of the, the procurement process. So I, I think we'll see some brands, especially brands as retailers like those, that really sort of go to town on, on finding ways to kind of uh, maximize people's enjoyment of products 
when they're buying. Let me ask how far that actually goes when you talk about creating that kind of experience. I'm asking now about virtual reality and augmented reality. If you want to have the experience, but you can't necessarily be there. I know for Alibaba, at least on our platform, we had some shops like Macy's uh, having virtual reality shopping experiences. I, I know that you are skeptical of accepting technology whole cloth in the, in the shopping experience and the retail experience, but I'm just wondering at what point it, does this become an additive and at what point is it something that it takes away from the experience? Good question. And, and you kind of disappointed when he said something really smart before, which was to say that we're in the business of serving people. Because um, I think absolutely everything that we ever do in our industry has to be about sort of empathetically understanding consumers' needs and sort of working around that. So, um, you know, if you genuinely think you are providing a retail experience that is so good through the virtual reality headset that people will choose to do that rather than anything else they could choose to do in virtual reality, then go for it. But just be kind of mindful that the kind of mindless replication of kind of mental models from the past is normally a sort of bad idea. You know, you, you wouldn't take a kind of, an, you know, a mechanical typewriter and then decide to make an app for your phone which kind of replicates what it's like type on a mechanical typewriter because you know that that was the solution to the problem, you know, several hundred years ago when computers didn't exist. So to kind of have a sort of metaphor, which is a shopping center, you know, to what degree do you create virtual queues where you have to queue up in store to buy something? To what degree do you have to hand over a virtual credit card to buy something? That, those clearly are stupid things to do. But maybe just the act of walking around a virtual mall, maybe, uh, unless you have an amazing experience, may, maybe that's actually a replication of a fairly bad um, solution to a, a sort of problem that, that couldn't be solved in a better way. It may be more interesting to sort of reimagine it a bit more. So let's let's go back to first principles. You know, what is it about the shopping experience that people like? It's probably the fact that you can sort of try things on and see what it looks like. It's probably because someone comes along and offers you things that you can buy as accessory to that. It's probably things like the sort of smell. It's probably sort of glancing over and seeing what other people think about it. So maybe if we try and recreate those things in virtual reality form, it'll end up not really looking like a, a shopping mall, but it'll be some form of social shopping there'll be some form of, sort of body scanners that that can uh, measure you there'll be some form of kind of assistance that comes over the top of all this as well and uh, it might not look like a shopping mall do you think we're there yet or are we still waiting for that killer app I see. Um, I mean this in a in a positive way. I actually think that we're quite a long way from being there. I think that's true for most industries, but in particular retail. You know, if I was a physical retailer today, I would be thinking in a world where people's expectations have now been radically changed by the internet. How can I change my shopping environment uh, to adapt to those new needs? Like people are now grossly intolerant of waiting in line because that thing doesn't exist on the internet. People now don't expect. Uh, to spend a long time finding things because with the search bar, it doesn't take much time to do that. Um, so I'm amazed that more physical retailers have not learned from the online world, but I'm also amazed that more online retailers haven't worked, worked, you know, realized stuff from the physical world, which is that actually people want help. Uh, people want suggestions of what goes with each, with each other things. Uh, people don't want vanity sizing anymore. Like in the olden days, vanity sizing meant that you felt good in a shop for 10 seconds. Uh, now vanity sizing means that you send the thing back because it doesn't 
fit. So I think I think we're a very, very long way there. And I think there are huge opportunities for companies to sort of build for this modern world, to understand what people's expectations are now, to understand what the point of friction are, and to work around that. Tom, as a last topic, I want to raise something that I know is likely to set you off. And, and that's namely the use of, <laughs> of bots or chat bots in customer service. I, I've read enough of what you've written to know that you have some objections to that. Can you talk about how you feel about chat bots? I think, I think for me, one of the reasons I get so irritated is because people have sort of made the wrong assumptions and, and, and thought about this in the wrong way. So for me, chatbots are what, ha- what happens at the sort of intersection in the Euler diagram, which is instant messaging as a platform and artificial intelligence. So instant messaging as a platform, you know, which is widely being adopted in China and to great effect, is the best ever way the brand ever had to talk to people. It's pretty much the, the thing that most marketers would dream about. How can we have a one-on-one conversation with our customers in a way that makes people feel good and create muscle memory for our brand? Um, And then we've got artificial intelligence, which I can't talk about remotely quickly because it's unbelievably profound and exciting. But in sort of intersection between the two, we have bots, which at the moment are incredibly basic and as a consumer, incredibly frustrating and are without any exception, a much more time consuming and less enjoyable experience than any other form of communication. If you try and rearrange your flight through a chatbot, it will take about 35 minutes and involve about 100 different messages. The choice architecture and the way that information is explained is a bit more like an automated call center than it is a you know a, a kind of robot that you speak to. Like I am sure that the potential technology is such that in ten years' time we won't know that we're speaking to a robot and we won't see the limitations. But at the moment, it just seems remarkably rude to us that as brands we spend all of our time hoping that customers will have a conversation with us, and then when they actually you know really want that, we then take their interest and outsource that to a robot because we don't get worthy of. of one of our staff members' time. So everything from the actual consumer experience to the philosophy of what it represents, um, I find very difficult at the moment. But if you if you kind of segment customers and customer service needs, I, I understand one of your objections is, hey, wait a second, you know, you're investing all this money to acquire customers, but then you're treating them like a cost center when it comes time for service. But if you assume that people come to your website, for example, for the FAQ, or they they would just have some basic questions or needs, would you accept a chatbot that offers you that same kind of information interactively? So in other words, just a basic level of service that's the ai you know you're dealing with a chatbot at the time is is that okay I think the very simple way to answer that question is to go, I can accept that for specific use cases, chatbots, when they get good enough, will be a satisfactory way to solve that problem. But I think that that's the wrong way for us to think about technology. It's it's an implication that we take a technology and then we see how we can use it. If the question really is, we have people that have common questions, what's the best way to make sure that they get the answers they need? It may well be that a chatbot is the best way, but we may have to also be open-minded to the fact that an FAQ part of a website may be a better way or having a searchable forum may be a better way or having a community of people online that absolutely love the products and are there to help for free maybe that's the best way so I'm not I'm not in principle um, anti the idea of an automated thing that uses text 
give help. I'm just aware that my experiences so far have been so bad. And at a time when companies spend vast amounts of money hoping that people will talk to them, huge amounts of money telling the world how great their brand is, as a point of principle for people's first experiences with platforms be so low expectations, I just think it's the wrong way to go about things. This, this idea of testing and learning and giving people bad impressions when they first join the service is very expensive. So I'd rather companies got the technology right, really, really perfected it, and then unleash it on their customers when they can be confident that everyone's going to have a better experience there than any other way of, of doing things with that brand. Tom Goodwin, I, I want to thank you again for joining us. Come visit us on the web at www.alizilla.com. You've been listening to Alleycast, a regular podcast from the Alibaba Group. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Adam Najberg.